you know, sheltering in place and stay at home orders and all of the stuff this isolation is doing is it's raising and increasing our awareness of the fact that digital technologies are incredibly helpful tools, super grateful for them, uh, but they do fall short. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with my main man, David Bloom. David, let me ask you a really complicated question. How are you doing right now? That, that is pretty complicated. <laughs> it's um, loaded, man. It, it's loaded because there's, I mean, there's all sorts of aspects to it. Yeah. I mean, Susan and I are doing well. We feel super fortunate um, with where we are because we know how damaging this has been for so many people's lives. And, um, you know, honestly, we've been kind of insulated from it up in the mountains and, um, but yeah, it's, it's also difficult from a ministry perspective, basically everything that we know and love has been kind of taken away as far as, you know, how you do ministry, which has generally been for me, discipleship and one-on-one discipleship, small groups, things like that are something that I love. And that has just been completely removed. And so, you know, we're, we're praising God for technology, but it's just not the same. It's not a direct replacement um, for relationship in ministry. And I bet a lot of pastors are struggling with this. Maybe some introverted pastors are like, this is awesome. I hope we never go back. But um, I think most pastors are struggling to figure out what does ministry and relationship look like online? Um, because we're, we're missing that face-to-face component. Yeah. And everybody's missing it. I mean, everybody's talking about introverts and, oh, like, you know, people said, oh, COVID, this could be amazing for introverts and, you know, all the memes and all that. Well, I'm married to one and it's not been amazing for them. And so I don't (laughs) think it's, I don't think it's introvert, extrovert. Uh, I just think we're all human and we need contact right now. And so already a lonely time in our culture. And then this hits, I mean, just what a strange moment this is. We will never forget it of, well, I'm not really allowed to hug, you know, kind of, we can Corona bump each other. I sat with a friend yesterday and I'm like, do I wear the mask? And he's like, Oh, I don't care. We can have a regular conversation, you know? And so being respectful to others, but let's dig in on that just a little bit. Um, today I have Jay Kim on the podcast, phenomenal conversation with Jay. Um, he's a local church pastor in California. And so he writes a book called analog church that happens to come out during a pandemic when we have to go digital. So phenomenal timing or terrible. when we talk about that. And so we, we kind of just crack open, um, what's happening right now. Um, what's been good about technology and what are we losing in the midst of that? So David, let me just ask you as a local church pastor, what's been amazing about technology? Uh, in terms of the local church and discipleship, and uh, what do we lose with technology, and what are maybe we in danger of losing if we over rely on technology? Well, I was just thinking about this and talking with one of you know uh, pastors on our team, and it's just like, what if we went through this pre nineties, like eighties before cell phones? You just have landlines. Yeah, what, what would we be ministry. doing right now? <laughs> I don't, I don't each other? It's kind of. Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine. But let's say before email, before cell phones Ooh, and writing, really, each other you know, you just have a, yeah, like, what does it look like to, to, to be this kind of isolated and compartmentalized? But we do, we have this amazing um, technology that allows us to remain connected, allows us to, 
to communicate. And it really is amazing. Zoom, as much as we're getting tired of it, to see people's face when you're communicating, to be able to share videos, to be able to, um, you know, just to an extent, I mean, you see people with Zoom happy hours and Zoom meals and small groups are still gathering. So we've trans transitioned a lot of our group meetings, Bible studies and small groups, almost all of them have been transitioned to Zoom in one way or the other. So we have groups meeting throughout the week. Um, I'm in two of them. Uh, one of my well, the pastors on staff is in two of them. And then we've got um, all of our small groups on there as well. I think we have about 10 or 11 going throughout the week, which is awesome. I mean, truly, it's awesome. But once you're in it, you do realize that people are getting a little, a little tired um, of, of Zoom and they want to see each other to the point where you're starting to see the police crack down on like barbecues and stuff. People are getting desperate for burgers and hot dogs and just like hanging out. Um, but I, I kind of yeah, want like, that ticket, right? Like I would hang that on my wall. Yeah. Like if I got a citation for too close a relationship, we were partying with neighbors, my elderly neighbors out front and we got busted for a block party. Like that may be the coolest yeah. thing that I could get. Yeah. Anyway, continue. I digress. Yeah. But, um, so anyway, I just think about pre all of this technology, it would be really, really difficult. And it does allow us to maintain, uh, connected to, to communicate. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, give each other hope and encouragement and that's been huge. So, you know, we have our sermons online, our whole worship service online that we stream, uh, midweek encouragement for our people. Um, and then these zoom studies. So, I'm really thankful for it, but man, I, it, it's turned from a sprint to a marathon. And I think that's, it's causing more fatigue. You know, when you, I've done one half marathon and by mile eight, I was so depressed because I felt terrible. And then you have five more miles and that's kind of yeah, how this there's no way where, yeah. 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 We don't even know where the finish line is. And, um, and I think people are like, okay, okay, I can do this. We can all do this. It's a sprint. And then as it morphed into a marathon, we weren't prepared for this emotionally and relationally. And so as great as tech has been, it's, it's kind of been good for those first eight miles. And I think we're all struggling with the, the remaining five um, of this half marathon. So yep. yeah, how about you? What has tech been like for, for you as you've transitioned? Well, you know, I have a strange vantage coaching so many leaders and basically what you said. It was great uh, for a time and it's great to supplement. But man, as the only for such a long time, people are getting tired of it. I think views are going down. Um, you know, just from kind of my vantage, I've loved uh, tuning in mm -hmm. and knowing that people that I coach and friends of mine, I actually have been tuning in. I've heard you preach before and tune in for your worship service. Other people, um, I'm noticing that it isn't just happening within the church but they are literally taking it out of the physical building and maybe, you know, teaching on a park bench or something that feels, you know, very reachable, very attainable. So I'm, I'm really loving pieces of it. But um, like you say, it's limited, we have a long way to go. And we're trying to figure out what does this new different look like. So I think this is a great conversation um, with Jay Kim, I don't want to spoil too much of it. But we're talking about this idea of analog church, this analog world we live in, what does that look like? Physical things, face-to-face -face relationship, people we can hug and, and physically sit down with, but then this thing that is the digital revolution that has accidentally blown up in this season, a crazy 
but I think a really good time to be having this conversation. So enjoy my conversation with Jay Kim on analog church versus digital church. Jay Kim, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Man, uh, I am literally holding your book in my hand. I spilled coffee on it this morning. It's a physical copy. It's analog. Yes. It's it's made of paper, which I think are made yes. of trees still. Uh, <laughs> and just my confession, we're going to talk about digital and analog today. I love real books. I love paper books. I love books that weigh something. They get crinkled, pages I can turn. So uh, what a crazy time, man. So I got to ask you, um, before we start anything, you launch a book called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age, Then Corona Hits. Is this really good timing or really bad timing? Well, it's probably a little of both. You know, certainly it wasn't a part of our marketing plan. Uh, you know, a year and a half ago or something when we began the process, we didn't say, you know, let's time this to release the book in the midst of a global pandemic that will actually, you know, not allow us to do the thing the book is suggesting we do. So that was certainly not a part of the marketing plan. However, um, yeah, this is a question that is coming up constantly now, you know, understandably so. Uh, anytime I talk to anybody about the book and uh, one, you know, just on the surface, it, it, um, it's interesting. And I think in some ways I, I, I'm grateful that the book was released sort of in the midst of this because it, um, you know, if I had anything to say as a, one, as a follower of Jesus and two, as a, as a church leader, um, if I had anything to say about sort of what this season uh, that we're in is doing, at least to me, and what it's making me think about, it would be this book. So uh, in that way, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, and two, you know, honestly, for me, even though we can't physically gather in person in most places now uh, for the, you know, at least near future, um, I think what what you know, sheltering in place and stay at home orders and all of the stuff this isolation is doing is it's raising and increasing our awareness of the fact that digital technologies are incredibly helpful tools, super grateful for them. Uh, but they do fall short, you know, they fall short in terms of connecting us in, in the truest ways possible and embodied, um, incarnational would be the theological word, you know, ways. So, yeah, it's a strange time, but I'm I'm grateful that the book is out there now. So strange. And that's a good point, Jay, that I think we've sort of um, gotten to the end of ourselves or our Zoom capacity or our, you know, ideas. I've seen all the creative ideas online and, you know, people are like, cheers, you know, we're having happy hour together. And you're like, yeah. oh, cool, <laughs> but it just doesn't quite do it uh, as great totally. as Zoom is. So I almost think it's like it's given us beyond a taste of it, we've had a feast of it. And we're just kind of like, Oh, man, I'm hearing more in even the last two or three weeks on zoom fatigue. And man, can't wait to get back to what a meeting looks like or a cup of coffee. There, there is a great hunger there. So uh, tension is the word that I as I read through the book that I thought about of man, what, what an interesting tension, it takes a ton of discernment to live within tension. So let's dig into that just a little bit today. Before we do, uh, give us a bit of background on you. Uh, where do you find yourself? What kind of leadership spaces are you regularly in? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, I basically my entire life I've lived, um, in the Silicon Valley, Yeah, you know, right, right in the heart of the epicenter of, uh, digital technology. So certainly I think that had a big influence on sort of the way I, I've been thinking. Um, 
so yeah, I grew up here in the Silicon Valley. Uh, I've been here my whole life, and uh, I've been serving and leading in some sort of staff capacity, I guess you would say, as a pastor uh, in, in local churches for about 17 years now, something like that, or very early 2000s. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've been on staff uh, full-time at four different churches over the course of those 17 years. And they, uh, they sort of run the gamut of, you know, I mean, there's lots of different churches, but at least here, sort of where in my part of the world, you know, um, I was on staff at a sort of medium-sized church, and then I went to be a part of a church plant, and then I jumped from that to like the, the polar opposite end in some ways of sort of a multi-site, mega, huge, giant thing. And then um, for the last four years, I've served on staff at a place called Vintage Faith Church in a, a um, sleepy, eclectic, strange little beach town called Santa Cruz, California, which is actually about a 25, 30 minute drive up to the coast, um, from the Silicon Valley. So, uh, there you go. Uh, that, that's, that's sort of my journey. And it's been, um, it's been quite the journey, you know, to, to be a part of so many churches that are so dramatically different. I mean, every church is different, but, uh, they're, you know, these four churches I've been a part of, um, they, they, they're all wonderful, amazing communities that, that I'm so grateful for, uh, but they're so different. And so, uh, even that, you know, I'm really grateful for, for sort of the breadth and variety of experience. It's, you know, taught me a lot and, uh, made a ton of mistakes along the way, but, um, yeah, grateful for all of it. Well, I, I got to ask, man, what are the uniquenesses of pastoring in Silicon Valley? What's that like, man? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it is what probably most people would assume, you know, about not just this about not just the Silicon Valley, but about, you know, sort of um, bigger cities. So uh San Jose, the city of San Jose, which is, you know, the heart, the hub of the Silicon Valley, has about a million people in it, you know, so it's a big city. And um, yeah, it's everything's fast, you know, as you would assume, everything's fast, everyone's really busy, everything's go, 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 where, you know, the place is, you know, full of type A sort of Enneagram three performers, you know, like do a lot, accomplish a lot and uh, wear all of that as, you know, badges of honor, all that you've done, all that you've accomplished and earned. And uh, it's a, it's a fairly affluent place, although there, you know, there, there is um, poverty here as well in pockets. So that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. That's a, in some ways it's a difficult question for me to answer because I don't know what it's like to serve and to lead in any other context. So it's, uh, it's just all I know. Um, but certainly it's, it's very fast paced. It's uh, very much sort of achievement, um, oriented and that poses both challenges and, uh, opportunity, you know, and, and, uh, I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that process. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how uh, our mutual friend, uh, my brother, uh, J.R. Briggs, um, we talk about regional idols sometimes. And just living in Colorado, we have this regional idol here of experience. And if you go to New York City, just the achievement, the accomplishment, the resume is massive. In some places, I mean, I'll be out early in the morning driving to the airport and the road is full at 6 a.m. Like, what are these people doing? Well, heads up in Colorado because everybody's heading to the mountains. Um, there's different issues, right? And in Orange County and Southern California, there's going to be different issues there. So almost those regional idols be just interesting to think about how it attracts 
um, the like and is known for, and obviously just the impact that it's had in technology. Um, that's not lost on me to think that you're writing literally from that context. So a book is a labor of love. It's a huge deal. It didn't just pop out of you like a blog post. Why'd you go through all that to write a book on analog church? That's a great question. I, I, I can't speak for other writers, but for me, at least with this book, I don't know how it might be with future books, you know, if there are future books, but at least with this book, it, uh, like you said, it certainly was labor, you know, it didn't just flow out of me. However, it, um, there was stuff sort of rumbling around inside that I did not feel like I could do an adequate job, uh, in a blog post or even in a, you know, 40 minute talk or something. And, um, I tried to be honest with you, you know, we, uh, we did a, a short teaching series at our church about a year or so before I started working on the book. And that was a lot of fun. And it actually informed the book quite a bit. Um, I, I, I wrote small little sort of articles here and there, uh, leading up to it. But the more I thought about it, the more discussions I had with specifically with church leaders who were thinking about, uh, the intersection between ecclesiology and the digital age, uh, just the more and more I began to realize, man, there's a lot here that we, um, that I think it's important to dig into. So, um, yeah, I ran the idea by several friends who who have written and uh, you know are sort of in that world, and uh, unanimously they were all incredibly encouraging and affirming, and said, "Man, yeah, this really has legs, and it feels like it should be a book, and a book that um, could be very timely uh, and and much needed, sort of in the time that we're in." Um, so there you go. That, that's it's just you know it was a slow sort of process of several years of thinking about it and reading and researching, uh, not necessarily with the intention of writing a book, but um, that's what it eventually became. And, and I'm glad that it did. Yeah, what a, what a weird intersection, um, and not just in the midst of COVID, but I mean just in this moment of trying to figure out what pieces we actually hold on to and what pieces we need to release. Um, I personally coach church leaders at, you know, fast growing, fast moving, forward looking churches. And it's a more traditional uh, churches. And just to see the shakeup that's happening right now, um, others have said we were positioned for this, right? For this moment, we're helping other churches, others saying, we don't even know how to do online giving. Um, let alone even get a service onto Facebook. Can you do that from your phone? I mean, these are literally the questions they're asking during the first week. So what a, what a crazy, crazy season. Um, and I want to get to more of that in this season. You write with some pretty intense language here. Technology is damaging our ecclesiology, the reckless pursuit of technological and cultural relevance. Talk about some of that damage. Where's the carnage happening within the church and within kingdom leaders? Yeah, I, I want to be clear. Uh, you know, I, I don't think technology itself is the problem, and I, I know that 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 might sound, um, you know, confusing based on the title and the subtitle of the book. Uh, I, I don't. You know, I think technology, for the most part, the technology at the base level is neutral. You know, like most things, not all things, but like most things. Uh, the problem isn't with the technology itself. I think the problem is the ways in which we as human beings leaning into our tendency for sort of, um, you know, often thoughtless, careless, reckless indulgence, uh, just use the stuff that offers good into our lives 
and we use it um, in ways that it was never intended to be used. Now, I will say, and I do get into this a little bit in the book, as as technology has sort of grown and increased, digital technologies in particular, uh, I do think there is a danger even at the design level, right? Because it has to do with the commodification of our attention, which leads to the commodification essentially of our affections, which then leads to just basically our blind allegiance to these things. So uh, I'm not saying like in some ways the design mechanisms of, of digital technologies are neutral. They're, they're not. They're certainly in intentionality behind the way so many of these technologies are designed but technology as a whole is not evil or bad you know it's just that we often misuse technology and this has been happening throughout human history not just with digital but certainly with digital it's sort of increased so uh, that's what i would say i think the problem you know the thing we have to um, become aware of and, and 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 be very cognizant of and and respond to is not like technology itself. You know, in the book, I'm not arguing for everyone to become a Luddite or go Amish or something. You know, um, I think technology put in its rightful place uh, has a lot of helpful sort of benefits, you know, to human experience. Um, what I'm arguing for is a more thoughtful engagement with the technologies that we use to ask the questions hey, if I push these technologies beyond these certain limits, what is it doing to me? And what is it, what is it doing to to us, what's it doing to our community, and specifically what's it doing to the way we understand what it means to be the church, you know, the people of God. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think the dangers are inherent within technology itself. I think the danger is actually with us, you know, like you said, you quoted the book, our sort of reckless pursuit of relevance at all costs. I think that's the danger. Um, and we, when we do that, we lose sight of the gift uh, that the church has always um, been poised to offer the world which isn't relevance necessarily, but but I would say transcendence, you know, something that's totally other from everything else that people know and experience in life. Yeah, man, what a what a fine balance. And and I agree. I mean, the, the call for discernment, that's what I'm hearing right now, just throughout uh Corona, throughout our time on screens, as we're having to sort of ironically connect with other people through internet signals and just the strange realities that that brings. I think those without discernment will get swallowed uh, and probably have been getting swallowed in the meantime. Um, so that's what I hear is, again, that tension, that need for discernment, which I just think has been turned up to 11 right now uh, in this in this season. Uh, I'm curious for you, when you talk about uh, the most subversive thing we can do, and this is a quote from the book, the most subversive thing we can do in the digital age is lean heavily in analog realities. I love the idea of that. Pull that down to earth. What are those analog realities? How do we lean in right now, Jay? It's much simpler than the line makes it sound, I think, in some ways. it's a, And what I mean by that, it's actually, it's it's very human. You know, it's the stuff that we intrinsically know as human beings. And especially in the midst of uh, COVID-19, stay-at-home orders, all of this, and the sort of the the isolation that we're living in right now, the forced isolation, it's stuff that that we're viscerally feeling, you know, deep in our body and bones. I think that is the subversive stuff uh, of life, um, of what it means to be human that that uh, allows us and specifically the church to be able to stand in stark contrast to the ethos of the digital age. And what I mean by that, you know, I have a, I have a little line in the book that sort of summarizes it. That might be the most succinct way for 
for me to say it, but you know, in the digital age, digital technologies are built on three, I would suggest three key values of the digital age, which are speed, uh, choice, and individualism, right? Everything is fast. We have an endless array of choices and everything is customized and personalized to our individual preferences. And now like we don't even do that ourselves, machine algorithms, you know, individualize and personalize for us. And so to stand in contrast to those values, which when they go haywire, it turns us into very impatient, really shallow, um, super isolated people. Uh, I think the way to stand in contrast to that is to do the stuff of life that we intrinsically know as human beings matters the most, you know? So it's like things like gathering when the world is scattering, um, you know, communing together when the world is um, critiquing. And, you know, especially now, like in the midst of COVID-19, this, this is one of the strange, surprising benefits of this forced isolation we're in. I see it all around me, you know, with people in our church and my friends and family. And when I'm not just talking about followers of Jesus, I'm talking about anybody, everybody, just human beings that I know, almost every single one of them are all sort of feeling that visceral thing, you know, that ache, that longing to be with other human beings, to be in communal spaces, to not live so scattered, but to have the opportunity and ability to gather in a place in embodied ways and um, to share a meal together and not just eat, you know, your food at the table, watching a screen while the other person, you know, that, that sort of thing, these like digital happy hours and stuff, which are really great. They're really helpful for, for what they are, you know, and they give us a sense of pseudo connection, but they all fall short. So I think that's the stuff I'm talking about, you know, and I'm really hopeful actually that because of what we're experiencing now in the midst of coronavirus, um, when, when it is safe and responsible to do so, when we're actually able to get back together in communal spaces, I'm hoping Hopeful that there's going to be sort of, you know, a mad rush back into, oh man, let's let's be together. And certainly there's a psychology to it. I'm sure there will be a lot of apprehension about safety and, you know, hygiene and all those things for a little while. But once all of that stuff sort of dissipates, I'm really hopeful that people will rush back to doing the stuff that makes us truly human, you know, in embodied, again, incarnational, tactile, physical ways. Jay, as you talk about that, the things that truly make us human, I've forgotten some of those in the meantime. And I'll be the first one to admit it that, man, I forgot the joy of a long dinner where there's no rush, don't have to get the kids to bed right afterwards. Um, there's a little bit more space and freedom to breathe. Um, and going on walks and sitting outside in the sun on a beautiful day, like how many days have I missed? How many moments have I missed? How many opportunities after dinner walks? Like it feels like the things people are rediscovering are the most human things, the most simple things right now. Like who knew a meal's amazing? Like who knew a walk is great? Who knew the sunshine like brings you back to life? Uh, and so I'm like watching that happen in my own life. And I think a lot of leaders are resonating right now, but that's a great question maybe for listeners to think about what truly makes you human what makes you come alive and um, how has our overconsumption, uh, you know, allowed us to miss the mark on that? It's interesting. You, you say this in page eight, you say it's changing our understanding of what it means to be a community. Can you share just a couple of the ways that it's changing our understanding of community? Yeah. I mean, digital technologies, 
offer us this sort of uh, promise, right? That we can conveniently experience community, that we can conveniently commune with people uh, without actually having to show up. And again, not to sort of, you know, bring this constantly back to the COVID-19, but I think what this season is showing us, you mentioned earlier, Zoom fatigue, digital fatigue, uh, there's a lot being written about that right now because it's undeniable. You know, people are, I just read a thing in, um, I think, Psychology Today the other day where uh, a psychologist was talking about how even the very thought of like, not, not the thought, but the the very fact that on most video calls, we can actually see ourselves, you know, even if you put it like on Zoom, if you put it on speaker view or something, you still have a little box up in the corner, you know, where you're sort of visible. And she, she um, does this deep dive into how, um, how like surreal and strange and not human that is. Because in real life, when we're talking to somebody, I can't see myself. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what I look like. I don't know if I have something in my teeth or, you know, I'm, I'm just not that aware. And so what that does is it, it at least takes away one layer of distraction where I'm not so focused on sort of me, you know, I don't have this pull, this constant pull to consider myself and how I'm coming across. I'm actually, you know, at least visually speaking, I'm just seeing the other person I'm talking to. And now with sort of our digital mediums, you know, being able to see ourselves, like it's just hyper, um, it's increasing anxiety in some ways and all, and it's, it's uh, scattering our focus in terms of um, how intentional we can be in terms of our active listening and all those sorts of things. So, so there are all sorts of examples that's just one but there's so many where the digital fatigue is real because to connect over a screen is subhuman like it isn't fully human and i think we're really seeing that um and and that's what i mean right when we before covid19 before coronavirus when connecting digitally wasn't forced it was just an option the reality is we were choosing that option a lot and I'm not just talking about video chats. I'm just talking about the fact that like when you push like on somebody's Instagram post, you're sort of feeling in some way, first of all, the person on the other end feels like this dopamine rush when they see that you liked their thing. But there's a sort of, um, uh, there's an inequality there in terms of the exchange. The person feeling the dopamine rush is taking that sort of like button uh, interaction for being more than what it is. Because when I push the like button, it's literally like half a second. And then I just scroll through to the next picture. But the person seeing it on the other end feels like, oh my gosh, so-and-so liked my picture. That must mean, you know, all sorts of things that it may not, it very well may not mean. And so um, that sort of thing dissipates. It doesn't go away completely, but at least dissipates significantly when we're in person, when we can feel sort of one another's embodied presence, when we exchange not just, you know, our, our like buttons or retweets and not just our information and whatever, but, you know, actually exchange our presence, our embodied presence with one another, so much of that dissipates. And I think that's what we have to return to because what the digital age and its technologies have told us is that um, you can fully experience community without the embodied presence. And I think what this time right now especially is revealing to us is that that's a lie, that you cannot fully experience uh, in the most human ways, in the most um, 
God-designed ways, I would argue, uh, community with one another without showing up. It's good. You know, I love that word subhuman um, because it, it takes something out of me. Jay. And then there's that weird thing. You're a pastor. So I know you get seen in the grocery store and somebody comes up to you. They know you, they probably know details about your life. They're like, Hey, how was that vacation? Looked like a great date night with your wife the other night. And you're like, that's creepy. And what's weird is it's no longer creepy because I'll be like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, a Facebook friend. Uh, so even just some of the language, I'm a subhuman Facebook friend with them. They know things about my life, but I have never given them a hug. I do not even know their name. I mean, what a strange deal that they would know that I ate sushi on Friday night and I don't even know their name. Talk about subhuman, you know? Um, man, so we, and again, we can go for hours on this. I encourage you guys to pick up the book and hold it in tension right now. I think it's a moment. I would actually encourage you to pick it up in the next few weeks and months. Um, to be able to wrestle through these things. You mentioned it earlier. I don't believe we're going to have, um, you know, this return to like it was just, oh, when it's back to normal, we're trying to figure out a new normal. But I've heard this phrase recently in the last two months, maybe 10 or 12 people have, have said the church has changed forever. First of all, do you believe this? And secondly, how do you think that might be true? Uh, man, that's so great. You asked that question. Um you know, I'll just be very forthright here. I find that uh, I just find statements like that problematic for a number of reasons. Um, one, I, I think, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis obviously is like really, he, he has that, he coined that great phrase, chronological snobbery. <laughs> it, the the I understand. I mean, I get it. You know, I I um I understand sort of from a marketing aspect, maybe like you know you need it to be a little clickbaity and those sorts of those, those sorts of hyperbolic statements. You know, get people sort of like, oh my gosh, really? It's changed forever. I gotta know, you know, how I can adjust and whatever. And uh, you know, um, I mean, I guess it makes some sense in that. It is different, you know, but I think that that's true as we make uh, shifts, not just technologically, but shifts from like one generation to the next and one era to the next. I think that that's true. You could apply that to anything. So to it feels a little bit disingenuous to say, you know, it. it I, I know this isn't what people are intending, but it can come across a little bit like hey, everything's been the same for 2,000 years, and now because of COVID-19, the church has changed forever. I know that that's not what people mean, but I think as a headline, it can sort of come across that way. Um, I don't know. I, I probably have to think more deeply about it, but I, I'm, of, uh, I'm of the thought that I just think the church has gone through so much. The Christian church for the last 2,000 years, this, first of all, this is not our first global pandemic. Right, that it's my first global pandemic, having been born in you know 1979. But it's certainly it's it's not the first global pandemic ever, you know. And the church um, got through that, and the church has gotten through uh, wars and famine, and you know, just I mean, so much. So, and some of the most rich stuff was was written and thought leaders. I mean, think about C.S. Lewis those were not books that people are reading over a cup of coffee. Those are wartime talks, you know? So like, I find a, like, it's just robust. It's thick. 
when people write in the midst of crisis, I don't know. It just, it, as a writer, I think it comes out differently in those times. And I wholeheartedly agree. Continue. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, I think the major problem is when you read those articles, it's not always, but so many of them, you read it, you know, the headline says the church has changed forever. And then you read the article and you realize most of the article has to do with, Hey, what's your online presence like? Everyone's going digital and you have to, and that just feels so small to me, you know, <laughs> like, what? I mean, yeah, of course we're going to change some of the mediums we use and we have to do that responsibly. We're certainly doing that right now in the midst of this. But to say that that equates to the church changing forever, I think probably is um, it, it, it's sort of selling the church short. You know, like I think by church, what you probably intend to mean is some of our communication devices will change forever. Not the church, like the big C church, the gathered people of God. That that hasn't changed forever, um, you know, unless you mean it's different people all the time, which it certainly is. But uh, there you go. Those are some of my unformed thoughts. Well, man, I mean, it's they're, they're all unformed thoughts. I, Jay, I've loved uh, saying this phrase, I don't know, <laughs> to my kids. Um, and now I hated it at first, but it has taken so much pressure off to say, I don't know. When will we go back to this? When will this be allowed? What's this doing? I don't know. And even in that, there's some of the belief, maybe things are changing faster for a moment. Maybe we speed up to 2X or 3X or 4X and then pull back. I I don't know. Um, But it's interesting to see and poke around in there. Obviously, you're not writing this book saying, I am the the technological prophet uh, come from Silicon Valley. But again, it's a moment. It's not an accident that it came out um, in here. A couple more thoughts Um, If there's a church or a church leader or just a kingdom leader concerned about over-engagement in the digital, maybe they're getting tired, maybe they're getting exhausted, maybe they're heading toward burnout, maybe they just sense they've over-relied on technology, what are a couple tips you'd give them? Yeah, I, the first thing I would say is pay attention to that. I mean, really pay attention. And and by pay attention, I don't just mean like, oh, I guess that's happening. I should, you know... It, take some pragmatic steps to remedy that. But uh, by pay attention, I mean, dig deep, you know, excavate down what think deeply about what it is exactly that's causing the fatigue, you know, Uh, because usually I think the first things we feel are the symptoms, but we want to, and this isn't, this is true, you know, on a, on a broad level, not just with, with this particular uh, example, but certainly excavate deep and, and get below the symptoms, beneath the symptoms and ask the question of, you know, like what's the root cause of, of maybe the anxiety or the fatigue or the, uh, the drain that I'm feeling with, with all of this. The second thing I would say is, you know, and I get into this a little bit in the book, but, um, I think one of the, one of the most important things we can do in the digital age, uh, is to really, really think about and consider the unique contours and layers and, and sort of creative potential that's teeming, um, beneath the surface of the specific communities that we serve. Uh, you know, in the digital age, because we have so much access to everyone and anything, you know, you were talking earlier about social media. And if you post something about, you know, we had, we went to this great restaurant on Friday night, and then you see someone, they're like, how was that restaurant? It freaks you out, you know, and you, you realize it's because you've put so much of your own life out there into spaces where you're not actually interacting with these folks, they're just seeing you. It's almost like a, a, a strange voyeurism, you know, is what social media, so much of social 
social media is. Um, because of that, you know, I think one of the the really detrimental consequences of that reality of the social media world in which we live is that we we just become copycats, you know, which eventually turns us into caricatures. We just we our social media feeds are are so chock full of the highlights of other churches and other church leaders that it's really, really easy to get pulled into the rut of comparison, which can often lead to contempt. Um, and then we often respond by becoming copycats, which eventually turns us into caricatures. We just like, we've lost all sense of the unique individual creative potential within us as individual leaders in a particular place amongst a particular people. And we've lost all sense of the unique creative potential of our people in that particular place. And we just try to make our churches look, sound, and feel like the coolest, hippest thing we saw on social media. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do is to just strip our minds, our hearts and minds away from all of that stuff and start back, you know, with a blank slate, essentially, you know, blank canvas and ask the question, who am I? How has God wired me? Who are these people that I am called to serve? What are their stories? Uh, what have they been through? What are they thinking? What are their fears and hopes and dreams and anxieties and uncertainties? And how do we then collectively together become the sort of people who uniquely embody in this time and in this place and in this moment what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in such a way that our community in this place, in this time, in this moment um, can shine light into the darkness of our town or our city or our neighborhood or or whatever, you know, wherever you might find yourself. So those are a couple of things that I would hopefully encourage uh, church leaders with. That's good, Jay. Uh, I personally am glad to be alive right now. Uh, I am grateful that this is here. I know it will shape our kids in ways that we can't even imagine. Uh, they'll look back on snow days with their kids and say, this is nothing. You know, while the while the snow is falling, uh, we can't go anywhere today. Let me tell you about this thing called the coronavirus. Let me tell you what quarantine means. Uh, just such a moment. There's opportunity in this. There's danger in this moment. Um, and thanks for writing into the tension. There's not an easy answer in this. And we're certainly not trying to trivialize that on this podcast. So thanks for kind of wading into some deep waters with us. Last question. We always end asking leaders some practices they have for staying healthy. I thought it'd be helpful to talk about digital practices that you have. So what practices do you have in the digital space that keep you healthy as a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for me personally, you know, I, I can't take credit for this. I, um, uh, Andy Crouch wrote a fantastic book about technology for families specifically a few years ago called The TechWise Family and had, um, we taught through it at our church for our, our the parents at our church and uh, really well received, super pragmatically helpful. And it's had a great impact on me and our family. So I'll just share one that's been, it's so simple, but it's so helpful, you know, he has this uh, idea. He says, one of the ways that you put digital technology in its rightful place, particularly like with our smartphone, is to make sure that your phone goes to bed. You treat it like a young child, meaning you make sure that the phone goes to bed before you do as the parent, and you make sure that you wake up before 
the phone does. And what he means by that is don't let your smartphone be the last thing you see and use and experience as you fall asleep. And right when you wake up, don't let your phone be the first thing you run to. You know, how many of us have our our smartphones kind of on our nightstand, you know? Um, and it's the first thing we sort of lean over to grab when we wake up. And it's the last thing we put down as we sort of doze off as we're watching YouTube videos or something, you know? And I've been guilty of that many times in my life. But um, I've really taken that to heart, you know, put the phone away and then end with something else. And so typically in our home, it's conversation with my wife. Uh, Often it'll be some reading, uh, which is, you know, very different experience than scrolling through Twitter on your phone. Uh, And then same deal. When we wake up in the morning, you know, first thing I do is make a cup of coffee and uh, read the Bible and and then make breakfast for our kids, at least right now, uh, for my wife and kids. Uh, And then the phone comes out much later in the morning. So there you go. That's one. I can't take credit. That was Andy Crouch, super game changer for us. Yeah, man, the TechWise family. Um, I think Crouch is one of the premier thinkers of our day. And if you're looking for some some practices for your family and then you go, oh, wait, that wasn't for my kid. That one was for me. I agree, man. So good. The last book that I wrote, I probably had too many quotes from him. um, And they're saying, (laughs) why don't we just say, read the whole book and implement this. So so good. Um, Jay, I appreciate you and your work. Of course, this big cosmic accident of when this came out is not an accident at all. But man, best of luck as you continue to wade into the tension as both a leader yourself and helping others wade in that. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, man. Uh, Thanks so much, Alan. It was an absolute pleasure. Guys, this conversation is not going away. So we hope that today we've gotten in the way and uh, we just kind of want to get out of the way. Have conversations with someone on your team. Have conversations on somebody in the church that you are involved in. Have conversations with a friend, a spouse, wherever you need to process this idea. Let's face it, we're getting a little bit tired of the tech in our lives because we weren't meant to just exist on technology. So the question I have for you today is how can technology supplement real in-person relationships? How can it supplement that? We don't believe that it can replace that. We'd love to see you and hug you and have a conversation with you live in person, two feet away at some point. David and I would love that. We love being with leaders face-to-face and having experiences, but through the limitations of this season, we're just having to learn to communicate differently. So continue on in this new different, whatever this looks like for you right now, whatever we are heading into, just know that our team is with you. We are praying for you. I pray just this morning for leaders right now for two things, clarity in this season and courage to know how to take your next steps because this feels confusing and disorienting. We're here in the trenches and every Tuesday and Thursday, we want to bring you a message of hope, but also maybe something really practical and strategic that can help you wade through these times. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. We'll catch you every Tuesday and Thursday. And we want to remind you that you can live and lead healthy, even in the midst of a global pandemic. Shine, shine, shine. We ain't focused so long.